Hello and welcome to the podcast for the March 2008 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. I'm Richard Lane and I'm joined by Sally Hargreaves from TLID. Welcome Sally. Let's kick off with a review you've got in this month's issue and it looks important because it's describing potential public health crisis to do with a type of bacterial infection that's emerging. Yes, the authors of this review, um, researchers from the University of Calgary in Canada, highlight that from the late 1990s, multidrug-resistant Enterobacteriaceae have started to emerge within the community setting for the first time. Of particular concern, and the focus of this review, are the increasing number of infections associated with E. coli that produce enzymes called beta-lactamases. It is these enzymes that give E. coli their antibiotic resistance. These bacteria have been associated with urinary tract infections and more recently reports have described certain antibiotic resistant E. coli strains as a cause of bloodstream infections. Alarmingly, several surveys since 2000 from various European countries have shown a trend of E. coli developing co-resistance to a variety of antibiotics. But I think the important issue here is that these organisms have the potential for spread beyond the hospital environment. And although these infections are currently fairly rare, there is a real possibility that doctors in the future could be regularly confronted with hospital types of E. coli bacteria causing infections in patients in community settings, a scenario similar to that of community-acquired MRI. Obvious question, Sally, but how are these bacteria detected? Quick detection of new resistance mechanisms emerging in clinically important bacteria such as E. coli is a crucial step, I think, for the appropriate management of patients. And there are numerous methods for detection of beta-lactamases producing bacteria. Phenotypic methods and non-molecular techniques are the two broad categories. Clinical diagnostic labs use mostly phenotypic methods. These tests are easy to do, they're widely accessible and cost-effective. However, the authors conclude that many clinical labs may not be fully aware of the growing importance of multidrug-resistant E. coli and the best methods for detecting it. The consequences, say the authors, have to date been cases of treatment failures among patients who receive inappropriate antibiotics and outbreaks of these pathogens which subsequently require expensive control efforts. Yeah, what actually needs to happen in terms of infection control? And from what you're saying, are we talking about nosocomial hospital-based infection or are we talking about preventative measures that need to happen at the community level as well? I think both. I think it's vital at the present time that the international funding be directed to track and monitor the worldwide spread of these resistant E. coli within both settings, hospital and community settings. In addition, the authors of this review call for more rapid diagnostic testing of these types of bacteria and suggest that possible modification of guidelines for community onset bacteremia associated with urinary tract infections. Thank you, Sally. And quite a bit of coverage given to HPV, human papillomavirus, and vaccination programmes, which is a very topical issue at the moment. Starting off with the news desk section, Sally. Just a reminder here, how serious is cervical cancer worldwide? Well, globally, cervical cancer affects around half a million women each year, many of whom are under the age of 45. In Europe, for example, 33,500 women are diagnosed every year, and there are 15,000 deaths. And what is the evidence in support of vaccination against cervical cancer? Well, the primary cause of cervical cancer is known to be persistent infection of the genital tract by so-called high-risk human papillomavirus types. Now, numerous studies have shown that vaccination against HPV, which is transmitted during sexual contact is an effective preventive strategy against cervical cancer. Indeed, the evidence of efficacy of the two vaccines that have now undergone phase three trials, Gardasil and Cervarix, is compelling. The leading edge this month highlights a new report from the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, the ECDC, that recommends EU countries now introduce routine HPV vaccination 
depression in adolescent girls. This report follows similar recommendations in June 2006 from the US's Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices. And indeed in the UK, 12 to 13 year old girls should be able to receive their first dose of Gardasil in schools starting from as early as September 2008. And in the leading edge, Sally, which you've just touched on, a fairly clear bottom line, if you like, in terms of what the Lancet Infectious Diseases is saying about the efficacy of these vaccines. Indeed, we believe that there is most certainly solid evidence in favour of routine vaccination of adolescent girls against HPV and that this policy should certainly be supported. Of course, there'll be some parents who'll be concerned that vaccinating teenagers in some way condones sexual activity. As you probably know, the HPV vaccine has been referred to in the media and elsewhere as the sex vaccine. However, I think these concerns must be balanced out against the important benefits that vaccination has to offer. In addition, I think it's very important to note that because such a policy will take many years to have any measurable public health impact, cervical screening programmes must be continued for the foreseeable future. Thank you, Sally. And finally, Sally, you have a review about Whipple's disease. I have to confess, I know nothing about Whipple's <laughs> disease, so please enlighten me. What is it and well, what, what problems does it cause? Whipple's disease is a chronic multisystemic disease that can be fatal if undiagnosed and untreated. It's caused by a bacteria that is ubiquitously present in our environment. It's a rare infectious disease, named after George Whipple, who first described it 100 years ago in 1907. The disease itself has an annual instance of less than 1 per 100,000 population, and it's known to disproportionately affect middle-aged white men. Clinical manifestations are arthralgia, weight loss, diarrhoea and abdominal pain. The most serious manifestation of Whipple's disease, however, is central nervous system involvement. And how is it diagnosed, Sally? Well, because of its broad spectrum of non-specific symptoms and its rarity, this often results in delayed diagnosis. The authors of this review remain concerned that sensitive diagnostic methods such as PCR, with sequencing in immunohistochemistry to detect the causative bacteria, are still not widely used. Patients without classic symptoms of gastrointestinal disease might be misdiagnosed or insufficiently treated, resulting in potentially fatal outcomes or irreversible neurological damage. So are the authors actually calling for, if you like, improved or increased vigilance to detect this disease? Well, as yet, the best course of treatment for Whipple's disease is not completely defined, especially in relapsing disease and neurological manifestations. The authors of this review, therefore, are clear that better procedures really do need to be put in place for the improved diagnosis of this disease, 